This is Epicenter, episode 339 with guests Harry Halpin and John Shipton. Hi, welcome to Epicenter. My name is Sebastien Couture. Today, my guests are Harry Halpin and John Shipton. Harry is the CEO of NIM Technologies. They're building privacy infrastructure that's decentralized, permissionless, and incentivized, and allows developers to build privacy-preserving applications that protect people's data, but also the metadata. And John Shipton is Julian Assange's father. Now, you might be wondering why John Shipton is going to crypto conferences. Well, he regularly attends crypto conferences, hacker conferences, and the like to build a base of support for the Legal Defense Fund that is fighting the extradition of Julian Assange to the U.S. So as you know, Julian Assange was in the Ecuadorian embassy for the last seven or eight years and about a year ago was arrested in London and is now in a maximum security prison facing extradition to the U.S. And one of the organizations that is leading this funding campaign is the Courage Foundation. They are also defending other people who have been accused of various computer crimes, hacking, leaking of information, people like Edward Snowden, Chelsea Manning, Jeremy Hammond, and Barrett Brown. And opinions about Assange are divided. I recognize that. But I think there's one thing we can all agree on, and that is that if he is convicted of violating the Espionage Act, as is the case that's brought on against him by the U.S., this sets a really dangerous precedent for freedom of speech and freedom of the press. You know, one of the things which brought WikiLeaks a lot of attention is the fact that they exposed war crimes committed by the U.S. in Iraq. I think we can all agree that a world in which journalists are under constant fear of prosecution for exposing this kind of information is undesirable. And, you know, it's also important to recognize that WikiLeaks and crypto have the same roots. The, the cypherpunk movement, you know, we talked about it in the interview. Julian was in the cypherpunk mailing list early on and perhaps even had exchanges with Satoshi. And I think, you know, the crypto community really needs to step up here and support, you know, these, these fundamental rights of free speech because it could be your project next. You know, Harry mentions it at the end of the conversation and says, you know, it could be your project. If you're building something that you know, the U.S. government, for example, deems to be a threat, well, you could be facing prosecution for violating the Espionage Act, too. And you could be facing extradition to the U.S. no matter where you are in the world. You know, they have very broad reach, as we've seen here. So I think this is a really relevant conversation for people that are in crypto and for the types of technologies that we're trying to build. So yeah, this is a really fun conversation, really unique, it, you know, very different from what we usually do. But it was great to sit down with Harry and John. And we're going to have Harry on at some point to talk about NIM you know, and everything that they're building. He was speaking at Reset Everything on the privacy panel. And uh, yeah, I think we really align on a lot of things here. So I'd love to have him on the podcast as well. Before we go to the conversation, I've got a favor to ask you. Whatever you're doing right now, whenever you have a minute, I'd like you to leave us an Apple podcast review. Apple podcast reviews are the fuel that power SEO rankings for podcasts. So when we have a steady flow of reviews coming in, when people search for crypto podcast or blockchain podcast on, on Apple podcasts, well, 
will show up. We'll show up higher in the rankings, which means we get to reach more people, we get to have more of an impact, and we get to attract sponsors, which helps us keep the show running. And I just love to read them. Like I actually have a Slack notification whenever we get a new review and it shows up on my Slack. And like I'm always excited when I read these reviews because I know that someone spent the time to show their love for Epicenter. So that's the favor that I'm asking. If you want, just go to epicenter.rocks slash Apple. That'll take you straight to our page in Apple Podcasts. Or if you have the app already, you can just go straight in there and it would really help us out a lot. And I really appreciate it. And as a gift, if you want one, I'll give you a discount code for a free KeepKey hardware wallet. All you gotta do is just email me, Sebastian at epicenter.tv, subject line KeepKey, and just say like, hey, I left you a review. Can I get a KeepKey? I'll send you a discount code. So yeah, thanks a lot in advance. And now here's our conversation with Harry Halpin and John Shipton. I'm here with Harry Halpin, who's the CEO of NIM uh, Technologies. And NIM, I must admit, I don't know that much about NIM yet, but I'm looking forward to learning more about it so that we can do a proper long-form uh, conversation. But you know, you're working on privacy-preserving pre- technologies. It's like a next-generation tour, which is the same technology that kind of gave birth to, for example, hidden services like WikiLeaks. Cool. And also, John Shipton, who is Julian Assange's father. Uh, I'm here to uh, conjure up uh, substantial help and enthusiasm for Julian's fight against uh, extradition to the United States. Well, uh, I think there's a lot to talk about here in, in this episode. I'd like to first get some background on why you're here at an Ethereum conference. And I think it, it would make sense because, you know, the, Julian Assange is obviously very well known. Everybody knows his name. Everybody knows at least sort of his trajectory but I think for context, it would help to sort of understand what got him to where he is today and, and what brought you here to this Ethereum conference. So give us a bit of background on, on this story. Oh, okay, just to start from the, 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 the end, Julian is a part of the crypto movement or community from, uh, from the beginning, um, uh, being very much involved in blockchain. Christmas before last, uh, he was uh, playing uh, successfully crypto kitties, um, so and has a, a strong enthusiasm for uh, smart contracts. As further to that, uh, uh, my involvement comes because Julian is uh, locked up and can't speak for himself. So uh, I wander around trying to assemble support of a financial nature, a political nature and a communal nature. So I've been to Oslo, Berlin, Spain, France a few times, Strasbourg, Brussels and London, uh, building a coalition of support, which I hope uh, the supporting community of Ethereum can uh, reach out to Julian and assist. And what is it about the Ethereum community that, why the Ethereum community, or is it one of many communities that you're sort of uh, seeking support from, or are you seeking support also from other uh, non, non-crypto communities? Well, uh, every community, but for, to answer your question in particular, the Ethereum community has a, a notion uh, of public goods, which uh, 
Vitaly uh, spoke of today. So it's a, a community, a foundation. Also, it seems to be contemporary communal effort to establish a means of uh, communication, a means of contract and a means of developing capital in a more communal uh, and a better spread on the base. So if there's preventative measures to within the community to prevent the accumulation of singularly large amounts of capital, uh, we call a plutocracy, and divert the course of Ethereum, there's preventative measures within the community and within the the uh, structure of Ethereum which make it very, very attractive to, to me and to Julian and other supporters. Yeah, so I think one of the most important things to realize about Julian, and I, I consider myself his friend, is that effectively Julian's project for WikiLeaks was to a large extent had a, a heavy intellectual basis. He has a paper, which is very rarely read, called State and Terrorist Conspiracies, where he's looking at the U.S. government programs to map the social networks of political radicals, people that they considered undesirable. And he said, actually, the real problem is corrupt governments, plutocracy, the centralization of power. And he said, and they also form a network they have a, a powerful network that then asymmetrically hurts people who are weaker and not as well-connected into their elite network. So in his paper, he says, couldn't we imagine a case where we the, – the reason why this elite power has so much power is because they control the flow of information and they keep it secret between themselves. What, for example, trade deals are going on or war crimes. And so Julian – theorized, and this is before WikiLeaks, he said, if we could somehow overload this network with excess information and prevent them from being so much in control because they themselves were so could no longer maintain their own secrets, then these centralized corrupt powers would become paranoid about each other. It would be no longer capable of communicating in secret. And at the end of the paper, he says, I'll explain more in part two. And then he doesn't actually finish the paper, but he creates WikiLeaks. And I, I think... DDoSing the system. It's essentially <laughs> a DDoS of the global centralized elite. And it's a it's a very political act. And at the same point, I think it, it's very bright. People often don't understand how intelligent that move was. And he was trying to kind of flip the tables because, for example, many people would be paranoid you know, talking to Julian, talk, hanging out with Julian's father in an Ethereum conference, paranoid about donating to WikiLeaks. Even Nakamoto was a little bit paranoid. But the fact of the matter is he said the real goal, our goal should be, is to make those who are in power, who are enforcing corrupt economic structures, they should be paranoid. And that was the goal to some extent of WikiLeaks. And we can make them paranoid not by doing propaganda, but by just showing the truth of their actions in the world through journalism and releasing sources that they would otherwise, them and their crony corrupt journalists would never reveal otherwise. You mentioned Satoshi. Has Satoshi ever uh, written uh, about WikiLeaks? Did he ever talk about that? So Satoshi was a little nervous. So if you remember correctly what happened, 
uh, there was a the payment processor of WikiLeaks was actually under financial blockade. Uh, PayPal, Visa, everyone had shut them off. You could no longer donate to WikiLeaks. And of course, at the same time, over in the Cypherpunks mailing list, Hal Finney and a bunch and Nakamoto and all these people were working on a decentralized censorship resistant cryptocurrency called Bitcoin. And when the blockade took place, Bitcoin, I think, was the lifeblood of donations to WikiLeaks. And Nakamoto himself, I believe, was supportive. But if I remember the email correctly, he was nervous because he was afraid that Bitcoin became too well known too quickly. Its various enemies in the banking system and whatnot, uh, and the governments would try to shut it down. Nonetheless, it, it was, I think, maybe the first time Bitcoin really got out of the cypherpunk mailing list into like mainstream news. Okay. Interesting. I wasn't aware of that. Uh, that sort of connection with Nakamoto and, and, and WikiLeaks. They're all on the same mailing list as well, I might add. So they, ah. I, I, I actually, we should troll through and see if they had some direct communication. You never know. So let, let's talk a little bit. Let's bring it back uh, somewhat and talk about your son. And for our listeners, just let's explain sort of the, the case that's being brought on against him. The United States has brought uh, an extradition case against uh, Julian from the United Kingdom to the United States and try him there for 17 cases of espionage and one case of uh, illegal use of a computer. That would uh, accumulate to about 175 years. So now we're in the 10th year of the persecution of Julian Assange. It started off uh, 10 days in Wandsworth Prison arbitrarily detained, then uh, 18 months in Norwich under house arrest, arbitrarily detained, seven and a half years in the embassy of Ecuador as an asylee, uh, arbitrarily detained again, and now the latest thing, 10 months in Belmarsh Maximum Security Prison, nine months of that, uh, 22 hours a day solitary confinement. So it's a an escalating intensity of persecution of uh, Julian for simply publishing news, really, uh, just truthful news leaked by Chelsea Manning and other people. Are you in contact with him at the moment? Uh, yes, I, I see Julian uh, Thursday, Saturday and Sunday. I was there last Saturday and Sunday. So you, you, you're, you're able to see him? Y- yes, uh, that's the means Regardless of... Regardless of the... The maximum security prison and the solitary confinement. Oh, no, the maximum security prison procedures, we all must go through and we all must be x-rayed, go through four uh, separating portals and the sniffer dogs and all assemble in a room with uh, high-fidelity sound and high-definition cameras, about 13, one every three metres. We sit with about 80 other prisoners who have visitors and a maximum of three adults per prisoner so it's pretty crowded noisy room you can't because of the high definition cameras you really can't you have to uh, hold your hands over your mouth uh, so that the the and you know dull and muffle the sound a bit and stop lip reading that surveillance of julian has now there's pictures of of uh, uh, julian consulting audio and visual of Julian Julian consulting with his lawyers. So the intensity of surveillance went as far as having 
uh, listening devices in the ladies' toilet because at one stage they used the ladies' toilet as a, a private uh, meeting room uh, to discuss things with the lawyers. The intensity it was, had an increasing trajectory, which the United Nations uh, Rapporteur on Torture, Nil Mel, Nils Melzer, describes as psychological torture and writes to a report to that extent. So that's the situation presently. So I, mean, I wanted to ask you, so you, you described the charges that are brought against your son, also the years of confinement. Do you think that what he did was right? And, and do you- oh, absolutely. You know, it, it, just to give you just one example of, of many, many, many hundreds, the cables uh, released from the Iraq war had within it a cable which describes the murder of an entire family, seven people altogether, children and parents and grandparents, seven of them murdered in their house. Now, that cable caused the rewriting of the Status of Forces Agreement between the United States, well, it's actually the cancellation of the Status of Forces Agreement between the United States and Iraq, and consequently, United States forces removed themselves from Iraq only to come back under the auspices of fighting against ISIS and Al-Qaeda. So that's one. The second thing is that the charges against Julian of espionage around the release of these Chelsea Manning's leaks, an oppression of journalism and a a limitation of comment. It's so intense that there's about 100 lawyers working on Julian's case. About 100,000 of us, people like me, worldwide, working to ensure that Julian's freed. There's a cost of, uh, I imagine, I don't know this for sure, but counting it up, about $10 million over three years. This impression, this oppression and intimidation of publishers, publications and journalists mean that no other publisher in the West or publication in the West or journalist in the West will take upon itself this enormous burden of worldwide oppression, a global problem of enormous size that no longer will anybody be in a position. This is important for the Ethereum community. If the United States decides that it doesn't like Ethereum, it can issue an extradition order against the, the leaders of Ethereum and kidnap them, judicially kidnap them. It has done so with uh, the Hawaii CEO Meng Wenzhou from Canada in the United States. It has done so with uh, Ola Bin in Ecuador, who's a, an, an IT whiz. It has also done so with Mike Lynch, who's again another IT billionaire in, in the UK that they've issued an extradition order. So it in two parallel lines, it covers technology that the United States wants or wants repressed and comment that it doesn't want or wants repressed. The, the free association of us to talk easily amongst each other and discuss facts 
in order to come up with a solution to our daily lives or whether we support this government or that government action is completely suppressed. So I'd like to, to add a little story. So, um, you know, I, I did my PhD in artificial intelligence. And as a consequence of that, and this is, you know, 10 years ago, more, I became very worried about surveillance. And so I went to this event called uh, Chaos Computer Congress, which at that time was in Berlin, in order to learn more about what was actually, you know, I was going to academic conferences and publishing academic journals, but I really want to know what was going on on the ground with like the hackers and cypherpunks and consider them part of my larger community. And at that conference, uh, Julian was there with other WikiLeaks volunteers and gave this like wonderful talk about WikiLeaks. And I was, to be honest, very impressed. That being said, when a WikiLeaks volunteer approached me and he said, oh, we're looking for more volunteers. Do you want to join? I said, no way. He said, oh, I said, I said, you, everyone in WikiLeaks, you're all, the U.S. is going to try to send you all to jail. And at the time, I was actually having my own grand jury court case. Uh, so I knew a lot about, a lot about that time. And then the, the WikiLeaks volunteer, he said, but we're not dissidents. We make tools for dissidents. And I said, I don't think the FBI will be able to tell the difference. And, and, and unfortunately, it's true. And, and what we saw over, and over the course of years is that rather than focus on the substantial crimes which were revealed by WikiLeaks, including uh, you know, the stockpilings of, of zero days, which have since been weaponized, they're very dangerous, released in the Vault 7, which I think is the most important of the WikiLeaks releases, the one which has really uh, put Julian's head on the, on the chopping block because there's no way the CIA would let someone who released a bunch of information about their ability to hack other countries and dissidents' phones and the public survive. What the, the, the public good that Julian did for the world, regardless of what you think about the details, I think does not justify, under any circumstance, extradition and torture and sets a terrible, terrible precedent for any kind of journalism. And also, not just journalism, but technology, because that's what WikiLeaks really was a combination and is a combination of Tor, hidden services, the anonymized whistleblowers and sources, which journalists should do, but historically are very bad at doing, with a very sophisticated journalism operation. And by, by attempting to destroy that, you know, the extradition process is trying to destroy the future of not only journalism, but any technology which they believe is a threat to the current reigning order, and this will definitely include cryptocurrency technology if it actually becomes successful. Anything which is decentralized, self-sovereign, censorship resistance, and enables transparency for the powerful and privacy for the weak. These are the exact kinds of tools which will be under increased threat if Assange is extradited. It's interesting how in a lot of people's minds in the crypto space, the threat sort of legal and regulatory threat comes mostly, I think, from things like financial crime, securities law, this sort of thing. I mean, this, this is what most people come on our show to talk about, for instance, when it has anything to do with sort of some of the regulatory threats to crypto. And what you're seeing here is that the the real threat uh, to the crypto space, sort of people that work in the space, is the ability for, for crypto to become sort of this weapon against the state. And in, in the end, you know, when it comes to financial crimes, you know, people, you know, they can go after sort of the teams that are building, say, like doing illegal ICOs or this sort of thing. But when it comes to, 
information, the potential repercussions of, say, WikiLeaks or something like that is far, far, far more detrimental to to a state power than, say, like, you know, a couple of investors getting defrauded or something like that. You know, do do you get a sense that in the crypto space, people sort of grasp the gravity of of this very notion that, that crypto can be used as a tool against depression and a, a tool to um, contracept sort of the, the powers uh, that, that you're talking about? Well, uh, uh, for myself, I like decentralized systems. Um, and they're very attractive and give the capacity to independently act in your own interests and your family's interests and the interests of your friends in, in a combination that... Uh, in combination increases their power and decreases the power of those who wish to utilise our energies for their own ends, the institutions that wish to do that. So I find it uh, very, very attractive. You, you might remember just a couple of days ago the Taliban in Doha signed a peace agreement uh, with the Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, the United representing the United States, and this is very big. This is a victory of the Taliban over an invader of their country, and the destruction of their country. It's about ten years ago that the Afghan war files were released and allowed us to penetrate, and allowed that penetration to permeate through our societies as commentary opposed to the a commentary that governments wanted to hear from, uh, wanted us to hear. It has brought about the end of the Afghan war. So it's very slow to turn things around of that gigantic nature, you know. So 10 years is tremendous moment in the distribution of information across the internet whereby all of us can participate simply just having a keyboard and knowing how to use a search engine. It's just simply fantastic. I, I want to ask you about sort of the, the, the information landscape and, and how it's changed since WikiLeaks came into the world. I, I think you could probably talk to the, you know, from your perspective, the, um, the, the positive aspects of WikiLeaks. Have you thought of some of the negative aspects of WikiLeaks and how, you know, with regards to the changes to the information landscape, um, what are some of the positive and negative things that, that WikiLeaks has brought onto the world? Oh, well, I, I, I can't see myself any negative aspects, but technologically I do see that the Red Queen's revenge exists and any uh, advancing technology will have a, a repercussion I don't know how intellectual you want to get today, but so I I'm, believe that Martin Heidegger's analysis is correct, that uh, technology has brought about a sort of uh, pathocracy whereby we find natural things that we relate to each other through have uh, been fallen into disuse, so it's really hard to recognise uh, what is human and what is deeply human. So the most of my day is spent mediated contact. I use uh, the telephone message services and, and all of that. So everything is mediated. The only thing that is unmediated 
in in a very busy day is when you sit down and in the evening and have dinner with a friend that's an unmediated but the phone still interrupts and demands that you have a mediated guest at dinner even though they're not there so the the red queen's revenge uh, has to be well we must take it into account and develop and continue developing means whereby we relate to each other face to face and I'd like to, to make a quick point, which is towards the uh, end of his life, uh, Heidegger, a German philosopher who uh, was a, definitely at some point a Nazi, but had an interesting analysis of what was happening in the contemporary world. He said the contemporary world is sort of becoming fascist, but in a new way. We're in, so it's becoming a giant system of control managed by cybernetics, by, to some extent, feedback between humans to technology. And the goal of cybernetics is to maintain systems in what's called a steady state, homeostasis, not chaos, not moving too rapidly, jumping up and down, black swan style, but really a society which can be easily predicted. And I honestly think that from my memories of Julian, that he was more of what I would, what I think he himself considered a almost kind of uh, 19th century enlightenment kind of person where he believed a lot in individual freedom, individual agency, and the individual capacity to reason. And that, you know, the, the whole vision to some extent of WikiLeaks was that data would be published and there would be uh, editing on it, sort of like Wikipedia, and that from the sort of crowd of individuals, a collective intelligence would emerge, which would sort out the true from the false. So that second part of WikiLeaks Unfortunately, it was never as fully developed as I think Julian wanted it to be due to all of the repression that he encountered. Attempts to do a sort of more decentralized WikiLeaks haven't really solved any of these problems. But I think it's, it's pretty clear that it is definitely possible. You know, releasing information can have negative side effects. It can hurt people. That's probably true. Uh, you know, if I'm doxxed or if I have... Uh, uh, revenge porn, there's, you know, and governments, just as they monopolize propaganda uh, with radios and televisions, as we all know from, you know, World War II, are now doing the same on the internet. Not surprising. But what I think is important to remember about both what WikiLeaks did historically, and I think the philosophy that motivated it was inherently a nonviolent philosophy that was working very hard to reduce, if not end, any possible you know, I mean, Julian definitely redacted lots of files and worked very hard to redact files. But it wasn't just about the redactions. It was about the larger issues, which is that if you have war, if you have secret governments that can arbitrarily kill or declare who can live, who's a citizen, who's not, and this sort of what a government call a kind of a zone of legal indistinction, which is exactly where uh, Julian is trapped now. If you have this kind of world, it's a very violent world. And the only way towards a nonviolent world, a world where there people exist in a cooperative, decentralized, peaceful fashion based on mutual exchange would be to basically build a sort of way out of this world through spreading knowledge and spreading information and spreading technologies which enhance human freedom rather than enslave it. And I, I honestly think that that vision is, even though there are all sorts of 
particular instances which one could argue about, I think that vision itself is the same vision that motivates particularly a lot of, I would say, the libertarian influence on Bitcoin and Ethereum, but also the same vision that that is behind smart contracts and much of the same vision which is behind cryptocurrency as a whole. That there is a sort of not particularly well-articulated uh, political and I would say exceedingly nonviolent vision behind these technologies. I definitely agree that Bitcoin is in itself political. Ethereum is, is political. At least it has political motivations that are, as you said, like they're not, they're not um, quite explicit or well. They're in email archives. They're in the results of the right. code in the, the world. They're, they're not they're, a big manifesto. There's not a, there's not a manifest. I mean, you know, perhaps there are some manifests out there, but I, I don't know that most of the people, you know, attending these conferences, certainly not here, you know, really on a daily basis, think of how politically motivated the vision of Ethereum is or the vision of Bitcoin is. Do you think it's important for you know the Ethereum community to sort of uphold that vision, or do you think that turns it into something that can be seen as detrimental by by states, by you know the media? Uh, because oftentimes, what happens is you know the media will pick this up and 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 try to vilify it. Oh yeah, they'll say, "Oh, everyone's a bunch of scammers. It's just penny stocks. You put your money in, it will just disappear. Why don't you trust your local bank? Why don't you trust us?" That. Being said, of course, like there will be as Ethereum, Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies, and not just cryptocurrencies, but the entire sort of cypherpunk vision of privacy for the weak, but transparency for the powerful. As more technologies come into being, which lets that be a possibility, there will, without any doubt, be more repression, both physical and violent repression by the state apparatus, and, you know, propaganda, mental repression stories against this kind of technology. Um, there's no doubt that that will become more and more uh, virulent as the traditional kind of state and banking infrastructure starts, I would say, probably declining as we'll, we're seeing now and will probably only get worse. That being said, it's important to say that it's important to work on these technologies regardless and stay true to their fundamental vision and what at least in that vision resounds uh, true within within oneself. But how do you do that, though? I mean, concretely, there are people here who who are aligned with that vision and build things for that vision. But there are people here also building businesses and seeing opportunities. And the vision for them is, you know, it's there. Maybe they recognize it. Maybe they see it. Maybe they maybe they're not even aware of it. Um, how do you reconcile those two? Things? No, I don't think these things are not necessarily incompatible if you do it correctly. So one of the things that Julian said, uh, you know, I had this point in my life where I could have gone working for Silicon Valley. Uh, I could have become a professor and just kind of relaxed and taught working class kids how to code. Uh, but instead, Julian said, well, look, look, he says, you know, I would be happy to be a professor and hang out and teach quantum physics in Australia. He was very good at that. He could have done that in another universe. He said it's important to do something that really changes the world. And I that's what, you know, that's why he did what he did. And that's also, you know, I felt one of the reasons when we I was finishing up my own academic research, uh, I decided that we should actually try to commercialize privacy enhancing technologies, another kind of cypherpunk technology called MixNet, which hides who's talking to who, disguises metadata. I felt that rather than just hang out and write papers about it or try to do a get-rich-quick scheme or join Silicon Valley, it made sense to really focus down 
and produce code because what the world needs more maybe than manifesto right now is it just needs working code that can actually solve concrete problems. And privacy is a huge problem. Uh, transparency in journalism is a huge problem. And if you solve these problems, it's, it's actually, I think, better. If, if I were going to critique WikiLeaks in one way, I would say it'd probably be better almost to do it as a business than a nonprofit. You know, it, the amount of repression must be very financially damaging to everyone involved. And I can say, you know, Tor and a lot of technologies were very important for WikiLeaks. They were, ironically enough, built on uh, U.S. government grants uh, to fund privacy so the CIA agent in China can phone home or the CIA, as Snowden put it, can do a Google search. And it ends up being really useful for amazing stuff and general purpose stuff. And that's wonderful. And that's what gave birth to a lot of the technologies we see today uh, around. But that being said, if you can create world-changing technology which is financially sustainable, either as a business or a nonprofit, or is just ideally even better a DAO, some code is law thing. That's but I think you you'll you you'll have a better chance of surviving repression and a better chance of accomplishing your vision. Um just uh, on WikiLeaks, uh, WikiLeaks is a, a wiki it's a collaborative effort. And so to be clear about it, uh, when the cables were being released progressively by WikiLeaks, there were 92 to 96 other publishers and publications involved in the analysis. That is exactly a wiki. And they, they all of their efforts would be feathered together and uh, the WikiLeaks would publish the cable and the analysis that accompanied it so that you could refer back to the cables if you felt that the analysis uh, required more thought or if you wanted to confirm the analysis. A perfect system. It is the vision. Similarly, Ethereum, not looking for a vision, e Ethereum and its community and the foundations are the vision and it's very, very enticing in my view. So maybe I'm bringing back like smart contracts. One of the things about Ethereum that people like is they can see the code. Bitcoin for financial transactions, you can read the transactions, the UTXO set. And this is an old open source principle, or better yet, free software principle, where when you publish software code of any type, you can see the code. You can change code. You can alter code. You can, you can make it do what you want. You can exercise your freedom. And I honestly think the vision of WikiLeaks as a collaborative platform, which is real today as well, and should be adopted by more and more journalistic organizations, is that if you're publishing a story, you should publish the data behind the story. Because often your interpretation may not be the correct one. Other people may have other parts of that story. And like Wikipedia's collective intelligence, you can bring those stories together and get a more complete and true vision of the world. And this belief in truth is something that I think people, uh, and this desire for truth is something that people need today. This is an interesting concept. So how, how would you structure that in a way, because I mean, most of the sort of data that goes into writing a story, say a piece on the New York Times, for instance, all that reporting qualitative data it's not quantitative data it's not easily you know you can't put it in a spreadsheet you, maybe you can do sort of uh, you're, you're the you're the ai expert maybe you can do some kind of like natural language processing stuff on there to extract things like sentiment or or intention or this sort of thing but 
how does one structure that and how does one make that into a, a viable system that people who are meant to interpret this information can do it accurately in ways that actually sort of convey the meaning of the data be- behind you know, a story or a, a news report or a publication? So, 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 I mean, to be honest, we did consider at various points running artificial intelligence techniques, natural language processing over the cables because there was this belief that was very strong by Julian that there were probably many stories in the cables which the journalists and human volunteers, there's just too much data. So why don't we, could we find things that people glossed over and certain stories would be really big in India or Holland and would not be even noticed by the kind of American filter bubble or the British filter bubble. And there's a lot of room for a lot of innovation in that space. I don't think there's a clear and easy answer, but that being said, let's be very honest about, uh, about things. The, the, the mainstream media you know, has been spreading lies, which, you know, WikiLeaks and journalists who are working with them help correct about things like, wep- you know, the Iraq war and weapons of mass destruction. So I know, for example, that my parents and where I'm from, everyone near me voted for Trump. And it's a very interesting reason why they voted for Trump. And I think that they said, well, Trump was the only candidate that came out against the Iraq war and that they had lost a tremendous faith in mainstream journalism because the journal, mainstream journalists had been publishing lies and that most people I know were actually very for the existence of something like WikiLeaks because it could restore trust in journalism if you had access to the sources and the data, and even better yet, if that was on a blockchain. The legacy media is in a, at a fantastic disadvantage. First of all, it can has limited resources, a limited reach. It only has a couple of arms. Whereas uh, publications like WikiLeaks can inquire in many, many different directions simultaneously. In that sense, legacy media is primitive. The next sense is that with certain IT techniques, you can constantly refer one fact to another, uh, as you know, one fact has another fact on either side. So you can refer and research and create statistics which will give you an insight into the spread and in, allow you to... Well, a good example of this is the, when uh, WikiLeaks published the order list, uh, logistics lists for Afghanistan, you were able to see how many desks they were. So you could search a vast array of papers really quickly and see how many desks they were ordered or how many computers they ordered. Then you could compare that to the statements that politicians and generals were making that they were winding down when in fact they were buying 2,000 more desks and 400 computers and 500 trucks and so on. So the primitive aspect of legacy media cannot compete with a a site uh, with, with a, an organisation or like WikiLeaks which utilises the fantastic power of the engineering that lies behind the internet. That's the most solid aspect of our conversation is that legacy media is technologically primitive and the organisms within those organisations, that is, the people, are 
shaped by those organisations. They have a, a quite a te technologically primitive relationship with the unfold the pace of unfolding events, whereas WikiLeaks and Say, for example, if you combine WikiLeaks and Ethereum, uh, not combine the two organisations, but combine the insights of those organisations, WikiLeaks has spread many different arms, access to instantaneous research, can manipulate its statistics, find out whether uh, information is true, publish all those statistics for others to review, and then an organisation... Uh, sorry, the foundation of Ethereum can feel the minute-to-minute -minute pulse of its take-up and the minute, sorry, the nanosecond-to-nanosecond pulse. I'm of the, the legacy. block time pulse. <laughs> sorry, I'm, the, I'm of the legacy media, you know, so I think in minutes it's ridiculous. I, I, think, you, I think I agree with you on, on the point that legacy media is, is, is very much lagging behind and... but. but on, on the other side of that, if you take sort of the opposite side of that, social media platforms are highly technological. And, you know, one must look not very far to see uh, the sort of damage that that has done to uh, spreading uh, truthful information. Um, and, and that's getting worse, I think, by, by all accounts. What role do you think platforms like WikiLeaks can play in uh, leveling so the playing field, I guess, or, or uh, providing more truthful information on, on social networks and, I guess, more importantly, stopping the flow of, uh, of uh, faulty information as we've seen in these last couple of years. Just uh, quickly on, on Facebook, you know, I have very much respect for people who make the effort to exchange information and, and keep, keep their level of interflow with their friends and relatives the corrupt use of Facebook by its owners and by the, its owners giving access to uh, governments or people like CloudStrike, that is a matter of regulation. It's two distinct ideas and we tend to mix, well, I do myself anyway, mix the class of ideas. The class of ideas of people exchanging information rapidly and quickly across Facebook with their friends and others is great. That it's corrupted by its owners and the governments is a matter of administration and that can be fixed. In my own country, Google collects all sorts of information. Lawyers advise me if I raise $300,000, we can ensure that Google doesn't collect it any longer. But there's no support for that in government. Government currently makes bad company with uh, gigantic organisations like Google. In the EU, they are going to break it up, but I don't think it's going to happen. But the proper administration of giant social media companies and Google is the problem, not our liking of talking to each other. So let me, let me say like the, the Good point. <laughs> fundamental technology of crowdsource collective intelligence determine truth, some notion of collective truth, maybe not big T capital truth, but at least a lowercase truth that we can all agree on and that can be diverse and divergent as people do more and more research and change over time and be archived 
this is a, a, not only valuable for journalism, but this is valuable for the larger society. Our libraries, our public institutions where we maintain knowledge, should be building this kind of technology right now in order to maintain relevance and become an important part of society in the future. And I'm very nervous, both around the centralization of communications, which I think, not because I think the platforms themselves are inherently bad, but they are more easily backdoored. We know Gmail handing over WikiLeaks volunteers' emails. I'm sure a lot more has been handed over by various platforms. But also because one person's fake news is, is another person, can be another person's truth. And the question is, who do we believe should have the power not only to inflict physical violence, which is classically what states do, but who, can, who has the power to control the flow of information? And by centralizing communication, both in newspapers, but also in Facebook and Twitter, we've created a censorship vehicle. And that censorship vehicle, there's a fundamental bet with censorship. So it's possible, and I think even likely, that propaganda, which I think is a better term than fake news, has been spread through Facebook and Twitter. It's mostly enabled to some extent by the demand for advertising dollars, which I actually think a lot of this work around tokenization going on in the blockchain community could help address. That being said, the who is the gatekeeper? Do I mean, we it's, trust? It's, sorry, but it's, it's not just advertising dollars. It's also political interest. And political I mean, like interest, it, yeah. You know, the, yeah. The, the, the Trump campaign and everything that happened around there was was – uh, mostly a result of like misaligned political interests. And even this week, they said, you know, a Trump investor might over get rid of Jack Dorsey and put a Trump supporter as CEO of Twitter. Imagine what the repercussions would be there. But that being said, the, the vision that a small group of experts have a better grasp of truth than wider humanity is, I think, very dangerous. It's essentially a feudal vision a divine right of experts. While I, and I think Julian, I think many people in the cryptocurrency space would think that there is such a thing that humans and all of our fragility and our problems can actually collectively determine truth, can argue, can have discussions, can sort information out. And the problem of, to some extent, propaganda and fake news and disinformation is really a problem of people needing more skills and better platforms, platforms like WikiLeaks in order to basically understand the sources of data, analyze the data, and come to their own possibly collective conclusions about what is true and what's not. That's a much healthier and much less dangerous system because something which is built to stop fake news will be built to stop political dissidents next and then will eventually be built to track and kill people. It's kind of how we see technologies progress historically. I think we could, we could go on on this topic for, for another hour, but we've already been here for about an hour and I'm conscious of your time here. So I'd like to ask you maybe a, a, a few questions here and bring it back to your, your cause, which is helping your son in his current situation. And so what do you think the effects of prosecution on Julian would be to the idea of free press? What would that change fundamentally? The change would be fundamental. There would be no free press Legacy media is already unfree. Um, there's only six corporations in the United States and each corporation runs on some sort of government warrant or other. So the very little freedom that there is now 
in legacy media would disappear altogether. In alternative media, in our stuff, you know, it was such a thrill. I'm, you know, I'm an older man. It was such a thrill to be able to read actual fact about large events in the world because I'd grown up on a diet of newspapers where you sort of have to read between the lines or newspapers in my involvement in early days in politics and where you, you, it was a tool you used to stick a knife in the back of your enemy. This wasn't always the case. The Daily Mirror and John Pilger and the Vietnam War were tremendous. It's not always the case. As for what will happen to our capacity to make decisions based on what we speak to each other about will be gone altogether. Will be, it'll just won't be there. There's a little more I could add in this. I'm not an expert on trade agreements, but uh, there's a, a supporter of Julian's, Eva Jolly, who's uh, an ex-judge here, is an expert on FISA arrangements, that the oppression in that I described in technology with Mike Lynch, Ola Bin and uh, Meng Weng Zhu and the oppression of Julian uh, and uh, journalism and publication that I described also extends into the trade agreements, the FISA agreements whereby national prerogatives, for example, pharmacy, pharmaceutical benefits in France or in my country, will be suborned and of a lower prerogative legally than the national prerogative. So corporations would be able to sue or would be able to involve themselves in the description of the pharmacopoeia and consequently begin to strip money out of the society. And that this would not be able to be defended. So it, it follows those three avenues. There's a fourth avenue, if I could just run it quickly past you, that the fourth avenue of this oppression is assassination and murder. Under Obama, there were 446 Tuesday murders decided between Brennan and Obama. 446 extrajudicial murders. We saw the other day uh, the Iranian general uh, tricked into a peace conference and murdered on his way there, assassinated a man named Soleimani. So there's three avenues to how the hegemon wishes to discipline and get conformity from its vassals the oppression of comment, the stealing of technology and the murder of those that they can't oppress in either other way. I, I, that's a slightly depressing uh, <laughs> outlook. To say the least. <laughs> However, to put it in a more positive way Please. <laughs> for you is this. We are here at the Ethereum Foundation having a meeting of people who have invented a method of commerce that includes community. 
last week because of the WikiLeaks releases, the Afghan war files, last week the United States admitted defeat, a defeat we all knew was 10 years old because of the release of the Afghan war files. So the war in Afghanistan is over brought about by our knowledge of what was actually happening there. Anyway, that's the positive side. Thank you very much. So before we end it, please uh, let us know where that you're operating and to, to raise money for uh, Julian. Sorry, I wore myself out on that last statement. Um, the, the Courage Foundation um, has a Zcash Bitcoin and other sorts of uh, donation portals that um, that would help uh, this uh, Julian and us fight this uh, extradition order to victory. So do your best, please. And I would like to add. I mean, I, I did actually discuss this uh, once with with Julian. I said, well, you know, a lot of people donated Bitcoin to you. You know. 10 years ago, the fact of the matter is I think most of that was spent on his tremendous legal cost, you know, 2013 through 2014. So I don't think uh, the legal team has huge resources. So any, and, and when, I know when Julian, I was the last guest to visit him before he tweeted about Catalonia and got his guest list turned off. And he, you know, one of the discussions, he was very depressed that he felt that people were uh, due to the media's campaign against them. And, you know, people were going to abandon WikiLeaks, abandon supporting him. And I think it's really important people do come together. And I did argue, and I'd like to see it be true, that I said, well, you know, don't worry what the mainstream legacy media, as John puts it, it's a great term, thinks about you. But I do think that the blockchain community is a natural home and base of support uh, for this court case. And it's important to have... Solidarity with this court case because it could be you and your project next. There is absolutely no doubt about it. So this is really a kind of, you know, either do or die moment, I think, for the kinds of technologies that people here want to create and what is the most serious legal challenge against the broader uh, crypto movement. I think that's a great point to, uh, to end on. I want to thank you guys for joining me today. Wish you the best of luck in this, what will be a very important fight, I think. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this week's episode. We release new episodes every week. You can find and subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you have a Google Home or Alexa device, you can tell it to listen to the latest episode of the Epicenter podcast. Go to epicenter.tv slash subscribe for a full list of places where you can watch and listen. And while you're there, be sure to sign up for the newsletter so you get new episodes in your inbox as they're released. If you want to interact with us, guests, or other podcast listeners, you can follow us on Twitter. And please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps people find the show, and we're always happy to read them. So thanks so much, and we look forward to being back next week. <laughs>